As usual, let's start the Dhamma talk with the Namotasa. Namo tassa bhagavata arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavata arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavata Arahato Samma Sambuddhasa. <coughs> Tonight in this Dhamma talk, I'm going to talk about something which I consider to be uh, quite an important and helpful aspect for the practice but it is often a bit neglected. And also uh, it's a bit neglected in really talking about it or giving a full Dhamma talk on it. It's about the walking meditation. And I think in my whole career of being a yogi, a meditator, I had never... um, somebody giving a whole talk on the topic of walking meditation. So, walking meditation, why should we do it? Walking is something we do basically every day. It's a daily activity for most of the people. We walk down the road, we uh, walk from the kitchen into the bedroom, we walk up the stairs, we walk downstairs, or we walk to the bus stop, to the train station, we walk to the shop, or we go for a walk, or for a bushwalk, we walk along the beach, we go for a stroll, in a park. Some people, they go on pilgrimage on foot. And especially before there were cars or aeroplanes, trains, buses, before there were horse carts, ox carts, people walked a lot more. And they also walked much longer distances. So could you imagine a life without walking, without being able to walk? It would be very difficult for most of us, I think. So walking (coughs) is a very interesting process that we usually do not pay much attention to. And as kids, we learn to walk at an age so young that we don't remember when we learned to walk. Somehow, as far back as we can think into our childhood, we always could walk. Maybe it's only after hurting a knee or uh, spraining an ankle or breaking one's leg or through an accident, uh, you know, with the leg, that we need to learn to walk again. And it's in such moments when we become really aware how much we take it for granted that we simply can walk. So as I said, walking, it's actually such an interesting process but usually we do not really pay attention to. However, for our meditation practice, for our Vipassana meditation practice, walking becomes a very important and, as I found, an extremely helpful part of the practice. And 
I do not know how I would have survived my many years of intensive practice in Burma were it not for the practice of walking meditation. If it were only sitting meditation all day long, I don't know if I uh, would have been able uh, to do it. The Buddha said that we can practice, practice the Dhamma in four postures. These are the postures of sitting, standing, walking, and lying down. So practicing meditation, sitting meditation, is uh, the best known. And, you know, if people do not know much about the practice of meditation, if you tell them meditation, then they just think, yeah, you sit down and you sit quietly and still down, that this is meditation. And also, a lot of the Buddha statues um, show him in a sitting posture, like uh, the Buddha statue over here. There are also some reclining Buddha statues, you know, that show him reclining, lying down. These reclining statues are either uh, depicting him uh, taking rest or entering Parinibbana, the Buddha's final passing away. There are also uh, Buddha statues that show him standing, in the standing posture. And there are even uh, statues that indicate a walking posture, like with one leg kind of in the air and with the hands. So, yes, the Dhamma can be seen, realized and understood in whatever posture we find ourselves. Insight is not dependent on a sitting posture. So for a meditation retreat like this, I think many of you appreciate the fact that you have the opportunity to practice walking meditation. Imagine you would spend all day in here, sitting, 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 sitting. <laughs> would be quite demanding. So, alternating between sitting and walking, I found very helpful, very conducive for the practice of meditation. So, as I said, I find walking meditation is a very helpful and very important aspect for the practice of meditation. And so tonight in this talk, I will talk about the significance of walking meditation, then talk about the benefits that are derived from the walking meditation practice, and also talk about the nature of walking meditation, including some insights or understanding that can be gained from the walking meditation practice. So first, in regard to the significance of walking meditation. So walking meditation is an integral part for the development of continuous mindfulness. You know, as is also the moment-to-moment -moment mindfulness in all the daily activities. That's also an integral part for the practice to make sure that our mindfulness becomes continuous and sustained. As I've already pointed out, that in order 
for mindfulness to become really strong and sharp and penetrating, it needs to be continuous, it needs to be sustained over longer and longer periods of time. This can be compared to boiling water. If you want to boil water, then you know you have to turn on the kettle and leave it on until the water comes to the boiling point. If you turn on the kettle a few moments and then turn it off, wait a bit and then turn it on again, turn it off again. In this way, turning the kettle on and off, the water will never come to a boil. And so likewise, when mindfulness has big gaps in between, it will never develop the necessary strength for penetrating insight uh, to happen. And as I've also pointed out, continuous mindfulness from moment to moment deepens and strengthens our concentration in Vipassana meditation. And as I explained this morning, it's this sort of momentary concentration that we develop, where the mind is one-pointedly focused on a given object in every moment. So even though objects change, but the mind is just focused in each moment um, on the particular object. And in this way, concentration uh, becomes really uh, strong. So sometimes meditators have doubt in regard to the walking meditation practice because they may be taken by the strong idea that meditation consists of sitting. And so they think, what's the benefit of doing walking meditation? What insights could be gained? What understanding could arise from walking? So they take the walking meditation periods as the time to stretch their legs, um, to walk around a little bit as a change of posture, to release tensions and pains. And usually it's also the time when yogis have a cup of tea or coffee. I think it would be really interesting to have a retreat where the teachers are present with the meditators in the walking meditation period and give instructions then. And the time of the sitting meditation would be the time to have a little break, to go to the toilet, to have a cup of tea. I think it would be quite interesting. <laughs> In regard to the walking meditation, the Buddha mentioned it twice in the discourse on the foundations of mindfulness in the Satipatthana Sutta. It is mentioned in the section called postures, like the four postures, and there he said that a monk because he addressed a group of monks. He also can take it uh, as addressing practitioners. So he said that a practitioner knows I am walking when one is walking. And then the second time he mentions walking meditation, that's in the chapter called Clear Comprehension. And there the Buddha said, a practitioner applies clear comprehension in going forward and in going backward. So, clear comprehension means the correct understanding of what one observes. And in order to correctly understand 
what one observes, a meditator must be focused or one-pointed. That's concentration. And in order to be focused or one-pointed, to be concentrated, one must apply mindfulness. One must be present and attentive. So therefore, when the Buddha said, practitioners apply clear comprehension, we should understand that it is not only clear comprehension, but also it includes mindfulness and one-pointedness or concentration. You may know that the Buddha became the Buddha became fully enlightened during sitting meditation while he was sitting under the Bodhi tree. But many of the Buddha's disciples had the big breakthrough not in the sitting meditation but in other postures. For example, while walking. For example, one of his chief disciples, the Venerable Moggallana, he became fully liberated while doing walking meditation. Or there was a monk who approached the Buddha just a short time before he passed away, um, wanted some advice for practice. So the Buddha gave him advice for practice and so he just went and practiced and this monk called Subhadda, he also became fully enlightened while he was practicing walking meditation. And many of the Buddha's disciples, many of the nuns and the monks uh, living at that time, they actually became fully enlightened while they were aware of what we would call general activities. And we know this from the Terigatas and the Teragatas. Terigatas are the verses of the nuns, the Teragatas, the verses of the monks. And so these are verses from many different nuns and monks in which they usually describe um, you know, their life, how they became a nun or a monk, and how they practiced and how they became fully liberated. And so many of them describe that, you know, they had the big breakthrough, became fully enlightened, not in the sitting, nor in the walking, but it was while other activities, doing them mindfully, fully present, fully aware. One nun was washing her feet, doing it mindfully, and then she saw how the water trickled away uh, into the earth, and by noticing that, she became fully liberated. Or another nun, who was quite old already, she climbed up to Vulture Peak, outside of uh, Rajagaha, and so when she got up to that mountain, she was quite tired and exhausted. And so she leaned uh, against a rock, trying to catch her breath. But she was mindful, she was present. And it was in that moment that uh, she became fully liberated. So watch out <laughs> in whatever you are doing. You know, don't be... Caught in the idea or opinion that it's going to happen in the sitting meditation. Not at all. So, yes, walking meditation is very conducive to insight and understanding. In Burma, some years ago, we had a French yogi. Uh, meditator who loved the walking meditation and 
she could do two hours or even three hours of walking meditation without taking a break. And she had good insights from that practice. So what benefits can be gained from walking meditation? In one discourse, the Buddha mentioned five benefits that can be derived from practicing walking meditation. And four of these five benefits relate to our physical condition. They relate to our health. And I think the Buddha was well aware that a healthy and fit body is a supportive condition for our practice. Of course, he also knew that the deep and penetrating understanding of the Dhamma can also happen during the walking meditation. And then the fifth benefit is more closely linked to the establishment of wholesome states of mind. So these are the five benefits gained from walking meditation as mentioned by the Buddha. So the first benefit is one is able to walk long distances. And you know at the time of the Buddha there was no public public transport. The Buddha, the monks and the nuns, they walked a lot. And if we look at the map and see where the Buddha had been, we see how big the distances were that he uh, had covered. And I came to realize that this is actually true because before I went to Burma for the first time in 1992, I thought I was going to be there three months. And so then I had already planned for the following year to go to Ladakh, to the Indian Himalayas, and do some trekking there. So I went to Burma and I practiced meditation with Sayadaw Uchanaka, and he really lays emphasis on slowing down. Slowing down in walking meditation, slowing down in carrying out the daily activities. And so I was following his advice, his instructions, did my walking meditation very slow, even walking from place to place and all the activities very slow. And so instead of just staying three months, I ended up staying six months because it was so interesting, it was so uh, thrilling what I was discovering. But then after six months, I left because uh, I had organized this trip to Ladakh with my friend and I didn't feel it right to tell my friend, okay, I'm not coming, (laughs) you go alone. So I went. And I must say that during these six months while practicing, it was always in the back of my mind thinking, um, you know, I won't be fit enough to go to Ladakh and do trekking. I mean, you know, you go up to 5,000 meters and how can I manage it? And But then I put it away again and just followed Saito's advice. And then when I went to Ladakh, I was fit as ever. It was really amazing to see how fit I was and walking many hours a day and climbing up these high passes. No problem at all. So it was quite amazing to see that this slow walking actually keeps you fit. Then the second benefit that the Buddha mentioned is walking meditation creates energy or it boosts your energy. And so therefore 
Walking meditation is a suitable form of practicing meditation when there is loss and torpor, when there is a lack of energy. The third benefit mentioned by the Buddha is just very generally good health. It conduces to good health. And the fourth benefit is a bit more specific. Um, it is, it helps to have a good digestion. So, you know, not to be constipated, not having the runs, that helps for the practice. Those of you who have been maybe in Asia, practice there and having had to deal with stomach problems of one sort or another, you know, how... Um, challenging or difficult this can be. And then the fifth benefit that the Buddha mentioned that can be derived from walking meditation is to establish a long-lasting concentration. Especially this last benefit is an interesting one and it's also a very helpful one. And from my own experience, I have come to realize that the concentration from a very focused walking meditation was really stable and it lasted for quite a long time. You may notice that it is a bit harder to establish a good concentration during the walking practice because there seem to be more distractions, also because we have the eyes open, they are not closed. Even though we try to restrain the eyes, not looking here and there. <clears throat> but, you know, when I really also made an effort to restrain my eyes and to be really focused on the movements of my feet, on the sensations in the feet or any other object that would arise during the walking, then I could attain quite a deep state of concentration. And so when I would go and do a sitting meditation afterwards, you know, I noticed that already at the beginning of the sit, the concentration was quite deep and that it really lasted uh, quite some time. And then through the sitting, you know, being able to further uh, deepen it. Another advantage of the walking meditation is the fact that the object in the walking is quite distinct, quite obvious, you know, the movement of the foot, the sensations uh, in the foot as we do the walking. You know, the movement of the feet in the walking meditation, it's a more distinct object. It's more distinct than, for example, the rising and falling movement of the belly. And so because it is so obvious, it's easier for the mind, for the mindfulness, to stay with it, to stick with it, to follow it. And lastly, as another advantage or benefit, for most meditators, the movement of the foot is a neutral object. It's not really pleasant or attractive, nor is it unpleasant or repulsive. And it is said in the scriptures that the concentration built up on a neutral object is strong and it is lasting. So as I said in my practice, 
I noticed when I did a very focused walking meditation, being able to establish good and deep concentration, and when I went very carefully into my next sitting meditation, I noticed how the concentration was quite deep already at the beginning of the sit, and then it lasted well into the sit and through the practice in the sitting meditation I could further deepen the concentration then. As I said, it needs a bit more effort in the walking to be focused to restrain the eye door, but this little more effort is well worth the effort because uh, it's so beneficial. Sayadaw Upandita, who was a student of Mahasi Sayadaw and who has passed away two years ago, he had said, a yogi, a meditator, who does not practice walking meditation before sitting is like a car with a run-down battery. So whenever possible, it's good to first do a walking meditation and after that, the sitting meditation. And as I've said in the instructions, during the walking meditation, we do not only observe and be mindful of the movements and sensations in relation to walking, to making the steps with each foot, but we are also aware of other objects that arise, which become dominant or which come into the foreground. Other objects, experiences such as thoughts, emotions, sounds, other bodily sensation, itches, and so on. So the same insights can be gained in the walking meditation as they can be gained in the sitting meditation. There is nothing that makes the sitting meditation inherently better or more conducive for insights to arise. Now I go to the third point, the nature of walking meditation or some insights that can be gained by doing walking meditation. In regard to instructions for the walking meditation, the Buddha gave, didn't give any detailed instructions for walking meditation. He just walk, mentioned walking, but not how the walking meditation should be done. But I think he must have given some instructions. But then later on, uh, different teachers have given different instructions for doing the walking meditation. So in Burma, I learned to practice walking meditation according to the instructions given by Mahasi Sayadaw and as they had been handed down to Sayadaw Ujanaka, who was my uh, first and main teacher in Burma. So as you know, in the method based on Mahasi Sayadaw, meditators are instructed to pay close attention to the movements and sensations in the feet as they are walking. Last Saturday, I have given you the instructions for the Vipassana meditation practice. And in regard to the walking meditation, I have given the instruction to first of all note each step as a whole. So doing a step with the right foot, being aware of that movement. 
doing a step with the left foot, being aware of the movement with the left foot. So one step after another, left, right, left, right. Of course, also noticing when the foot touches the ground, when the step is finished. And then I've said one can further break down the step, notice more detailed different parts of the step. And so the next instruction I've given you uh, is to observe each, each step in three parts, lifting, pushing, and dropping. In the course of this retreat, I will give you further instructions for the walking. Now, you know, just to let you know what uh, lies ahead. So, next step would be four parts to each step, lifting, pushing, dropping, plus the touching, when the foot touches the ground. Then the next step would be five parts, which would be lifting, pushing, dropping, touching, and then the pressing, the increase, increasing pressure on the foot as we shift the weight to the foot in the front. Later on, we also can be aware of intentions, like before each step, before each movement, there is actually an intention, a mental impulse that happens that then actually causes the movement to happen. But for these intentions to become clear or that we, can, that we are able to see them, our mindfulness must be, must be sharper, concentration be deeper, because it's a very fleeting, short uh, moment that happens in the mind. And so, as we are mindful of more and more parts of the step, as we um, have a more detailed awareness of each step, this um, naturally leads to a slowing down of the walking meditation. As I said this morning, you know, like a fan which is turning very fast, we cannot see many details. We even see a disc. It's only by slowing down the fan that we see it's actually not a disc, it's different blades, and then we see more details how the blade is made of the, the structure. So what insights can be gained from the walking meditation? Basically, the three general characteristics can be clearly experienced and understood. These are the characteristics of anicca, dukkha and anatta, impermanence, suffering or unsatisfactoriness, and not-self or impersonality. But we also uh, come to see and experience the specific characteristics uh, very clearly. Like each experience has also uh, specific characteristics and in relation um, to the body or to bodily experiences they pertain to the so-called four elements. I've mentioned these elements this morning. So then we come to clearly see how these four elements uh, have their specific characteristics. As I said this morning, the earth element has its specific characteristics of hardness and softness. The water element has the specific characteristics of fluidity, liquidity and cohesion. The 
Fire element has the specific characteristics of heat, warmth and cold. And the air element has the specific characteristics of motion, movement, vibration and also support. And so during the walking meditation, as we are closely aware of the movement, the sensations of the foot, we can get a direct experience of these four elements. So it's really a direct, intuitive experience of these four elements rather than knowing them intellectually. So for example, <clears throat> let's say we observe four parts, the lifting movement, pushing movement, dropping movement, and the touch sensation. So being aware of the lifting the pushing, the dropping, what is most obvious is the movement. As the foot is lifted, there is movement. As the foot is pushed forward, movement. As the foot is dropped, there's movement. And so, in this way, by being aware of the movement, we perceive the air element. We perceive the specific characteristic of the air element, namely movement. And then, when we touch the ground, we may notice or the most um, distinct sensation is that one of hardness, for example. So in that case, we would experience the specific characteristic of the earth element. But maybe we are barefoot and the, the ground is cold, so the first or the most distinct um, sensation is one of cold. And so with that sensation of cold, being aware of it, we would be aware of the specific characteristic of the fire element. Or else, as we put the foot down on the ground, maybe this sensation of stickiness um, is the distinct feature of that sensation. And so that would mean that we experience the specific characteristic of the water element, cohesion, stickiness. So, by paying close attention to just one step in the walking meditation, these four elements can be directly, personally experienced. One can see the specific characteristic of these four elements. And so here, um, you know, we are no longer on the level of concepts, but there we see an absolute reality, just the experience of cold or movement. So, you know, in the beginning, in our walking meditation, we still may have the concept, you know, of the foot, of the leg, that is uh, doing a step. So there's still the concept that it's my foot is being lifted, the foot is being for, pushed forward, you know, it's the foot that is moving downwards, it's the foot that feels the hardness on the ground, and so on. But, you know, as our practice deepens, then after some time we kind of lose the notion of a foot being lifted or pushed forward. Then what we experience is just, you know, movement, 
a lifting movement is what we are aware of. Or then there is just the awareness of movement going forward or downwards, or just uh, the, sen- the, the notion of uh, a sensation of cold that is experienced. And later on in the practice, you know, it's not only that we lose the notion uh, of the foot or, you know, that we are no longer aware of the shape or the form of the foot, but that you know, the whole leg can kind of disappear. We are no longer aware of a shape of a leg or even the whole body. But, you know, what we are aware of, what is perceived, is movement or hardness, or warmth, or cold. And so then the experience is, you know, it is walking. So it's no longer I am walking, or my body is walking, but it's just this experience. Walking is experienced, or movement is experienced. And so, In this way, we shift from the conceptual level, where I am walking, my foot is being lifted, to movement is happening, coldness is perceived. So that's moving to the absolute uh, level. Something else that um, becomes clear and one understands uh, more clearly is that, like in the walking practice, there is the movement of the foot as a physical process, and then there is that part which knows the movement of the foot. So one comes to see there are two different uh, parts involved. One is a physical Part, and then there is the mind, the awareness that knows the, the movement. The mind has the, is that which knows or which experiences, that which observes the body. The body itself doesn't know, does not observe, does not perceive. <clears throat> so in this way, one comes to differentiate between the body and the mind, differentiate between physical phenomena and mental phenomena. And later on, when we also become aware of the intentions, these mental impulses that happen uh, just before a movement starts, so then we come to see that the movement does not happen just by itself, but that it is this mental impulse that makes the movement happening. So it's the intention to lift the foot, for example, that then causes the actual lifting movement of the foot. Likewise, the intention to move the foot forward, that's the cause for the forward movement to happen. And so then one comes to... uh, comes to see cause and effect relationship. One comes to understand conditionality. So seeing that there is a, when there is a cause, there is an effect. Or knowing when there is an effect, there must have been a cause. So one sees that things arise in dependence on causes, conditions. If there is no intention to lift the foot, 
then the lifting movement of the foot would not happen. As I already said, in the walking meditation, also the three general characteristics can be um, experienced, can be seen and understood. In regard to impermanence, the anicca nature of all conditioned phenomena, very generally, initially, one comes to see, for example, the lifting movement begins and then comes to an end. After that, the pushing movement starts, comes to an end. Then the dropping movement begins and ends. And once you know the lifting movement has stopped, once it is finished, then it's gone. It's completely gone. It's not there anymore. And then pushing movement is something new that arises. Or, you know, even making a step with the right foot, making a step with the left foot, so after the step of the right foot is done, then that movement is finished. It's gone. It's no longer present. Then the movement with the left foot uh, arises, starts, comes to an end, and then is gone. <coughs> So in this way, one can start to see the impermanence. Things are not lasting. They are not lasting entities. But, as in the case of movement, they are phenomena that arise and pass away, that appear and disappear. And as I've pointed out uh, earlier, Later on, one comes to see that, you know, even a lifting movement uh, breaks further down in smaller movement, in smaller units of impermanent moments of movement, arising and passing away, arising and passing away, in very quick succession. So then, these moments of impermanent moments of movement become smaller, 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 smaller shorter, shorter. And so in connection to seeing the impermanent nature of things, um, sort of walking meditation, we see the momentariness of phenomena, that they really just are present a moment, a very brief moment as I said in the case of movement, when it's just these moments of lifting movements, one after the other, one after the other, one after the other. And, you know, when we watch old films like movies with Charlie Chaplin, there we see that, you know, when Charlie Chaplin walks, it's, it's not kind of um, smooth movements, but it's kind of a bit rugged and, um, yes, um, like a bit like broken, having intervals. And, you know, you may know a film is made up of um, many pictures. Nowadays, you know, there are so, so many pictures in every second, so that, you know, everything looks very smooth. But in those days, uh, less pictures per second. That's why then movements, you know, it's like little frames, separate movements, uh, one after the other. So, sharp mindfulness and deep concentration and the slowing down of movements, then uh, it's like looking through a microscope or electronic microscope. You see so clearly, so detailed how this movement or how this sensation um, is actually happening. 
it was in my first or second year when I was practicing at the meditation center in Burma, beside Ujjanaka. There was a Dutch yogi, a meditator, who was practicing there, following Saido's instructions. And one afternoon, as he was doing walking meditation, he started to notice that the movements in the walking were not as smooth as they had always been his whole life, you know, and his concept of movement is it's something ongoing, smooth. But, you know, the movement became a bit jerky, a bit rugged. And he thought, ah, what is happening? I must be doing something wrong. And so he tried to make the movement smooth, uh, ongoing again. And the more he tried, the jerkier the movement got and it broke apart in different you know, parts of lifting, different parts of moving forward. And by the evening, he was really distressed and thought, I'm going crazy, you know. Like I cannot do a proper movement anymore. I have to go home, I have to leave, you know, before I really get fully crazy. So the next morning, he went to Sayadaw Ujjanaka and said, Sayadaw, you know, I, I'm going home. I'm back, going back to Holland. I have to leave because I think I'm getting crazy. And Sayadaw said, well, why do you think are you, you are getting crazy? And then he related the experience he had the day before in the walking meditation saying how his movements were breaking apart and became jerky. And um, so Saito listened, and then uh, he told him, well, there's no need for you to go home, because actually you are not getting crazy, you are recovering from craziness. (laughs) (laughs) And then giving an explanation to these yogis, saying that the way he started to perceive movement was actually um, in accordance with reality, with what actually exists, how movement actually uh, exists. So then... In regard to the second general characteristic, dukkha, dissatisfaction, unsatisfactoriness or suffering, this can also be experienced in the walking meditation in different ways. Um, Just one, one example how that can happen. So you know, at one stage in the walking meditation practice, um, the disappearance of the objects uh, become the prominent feature, what one experiences. So one not only sees the appearance of a, an object, but it's more the disappearance, the disappearance. So in the case of the movements, it's always like how the movement stops, disappears, disappears, or physical sensations, disappears, disappears, disappears. And so when the mind is confronted with this constant disappearance, the mind can uh, freak out or it can feel very wary or feel oppressed because of this constant disappearance. So then there is no more stability and because everything disappears so quickly, no stability. The mind has nothing to hold on to. Nothing can be grasped. And so this is very um, unsatisfactory, you know, an experience that is that is not satisfying at all. And so the dukkha nature becomes very uh, obvious, very clear.
and you know it's a phase in the practice one goes through and then things change again then in regard to the third general characteristic in regard to the anatta nature the not-self nature or impersonal nature of phenomena in the walking meditation this can be experienced as you know after some time it seems as if the movements happen by themselves as if we do not need to put effort into make a step or no effort into lifting the foot pushing it forward or dropping it seems like this movement ha- happen on their own accord so when you know concentration is good the movement um is seen as if it happens by itself it feels like the, f- the movement at uh, the foot is automatically lifted automatically pushed forward automatically uh, moves down and when that happens in the walking practice it can feel a bit odd and i remember when it happened to me the first time um to me it felt as if i were a puppet on strings it was as if um a thread was attached to my foot and as if you know an unseen hand would uh, pull up the string and so my foot was lifted the string would be moved forward and my foot would move forward then the string would be lowered and my foot would lower so it was as if there was an invisible force that um made this movement happening and so you know the whole process of walking seemed so impersonal you know it was no longer i who was walking it was no longer me who was walking but it rather felt as it is walking or i am being walked or else as i already mentioned if we are aware of the intentions because it's this mental impulse we call intention the desire um to lift the foot that then the foot is lifted and so when these intentions are noticed and seen very clearly then it's so obvious yes it's not i or me who lifts the foot but is this intention that just pop flicks up and then the foot is lifted then the intention to push forward and pop the foot moves forward and then the intention of lowering the foot and pop the foot is lowered and so then this whole process of walking is experienced as a very impersonal uh process you know there is intention there is movement another intention more movement so it becomes so clear this whole walking process can happen without me without the eye but it's just this succession of cause and effect cause and effect intention the cause movement effect another intention another cause another movement another effect so in my practice i have found that the walking meditation practice was incredibly helpful to understand the impersonal nature of this body mind process and so the key to this to the understanding of anatta of not self was the very detailed and very careful observation of the walking 
of the walking process of intentions and movements. And I think if I if not if it had not been for the walking meditation practice, it would have taken much longer to understand the anatta nature. Like if I had only practiced sitting meditation. So these are some of the insights that can be gained from the walking meditation, you know, experiencing the specific characteristics, understanding the general characteristics. And as I've said, walking meditation, through walking meditation, one can deepen one's understanding to the point to become fully liberated, to become fully enlightened. So I will close this talk with the words of Sayadaw Usilananda. He had also been a student of Mahasi Sayadaw and he had spent uh, many years in the USA. He lived and taught in the Tathagata Center in San Jose, uh, California. And he passed away in 2005, suffering from a brain tumor. But he had said, walking meditation is conducive to spiritual development. It is as powerful as mindfulness of breathing or mindfulness of the rising and falling of the abdomen. It is an, effect, it is an efficient tool to help us remove mental defilements. Walking meditation can help us gain insight into the nature of things, and we should practice it as diligently as we practice sitting meditation or any other kind of meditation. There is nothing to add. (laughs) Let's sit quietly for a few moments. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.